This is BachCast, episode number 15. find that Bach's sixth cello suite, BWV 1012, is typically the most challenging of the suites for a cellist to really play well. And there are a number of challenges that Bach throws uh, a cellist away uh, in this suite. And one of the most, most central ones, I guess you could point to, is the range. Um, That performance you just heard was the performance put out that really set the stage for his his establishment on the scene of being a uh, a true uh, professional virtuoso cellist. That was Yo-Yo Ma, and that was his release that he did on uh, the CBS Masterworks label in 1984. Uh, if you know the album, it's it's the one that's it's red in color. And if I'm correct, he was in his early 20s and just gives it 120% um, playing his guts out. And Ma, over the years, has become uh, a little more sensitive to the history behind the work he has internalized the work, and uh, in the late 90s, he decided to re-record the box suites. And he also, at the same time, produced a film series that uh, I happened to, to run across and I, I later purchased and really enjoyed. Uh, today, you can find some of these videos that have been ripped and put onto YouTube. Um, and each one takes a different... Bach cello suite and basically examines it through the lens of a different art form and uh, he's really trying to get the heart of what these pieces are about he also studied uh, somewhat with a Baroque cellist by the name of Jape Terlinden who um has been a member, uh, a leading member of the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra. He's also performed uh, with Musica Antigua Cone. He's performed with the English Concert. He's he's a big name in the Baroque cello world. And he too has released uh, two versions of this work. And before we dive into the actual music, I'd like to compare this uh, kind of young, brash, uh, I've got something to prove. Yo-Yo Ma from '84, with uh, perhaps a more conservative approach, uh, played by Jape Terlinden. And one of the things that Terlinden does in his recording is he adopts a. Uh, obviously, he's playing a Baroque instrument, uh, one that's um, got the gut strings. It's got a shorter neck. So you, you can't play notes quite as high in, in terms of the, the range. He's using a Baroque uh, bow. And he's, in this case, using a special five-stringed instrument. There's been some evidence left behind in, in the manuscript uh, in some copies that indicate that this particular piece is written for an instrument different from what we today accept as the standard four-string cello. And one of the such instruments that kind of works for this and has been adopted is the uh, piccolo cello, the little cello. And that instrument uh, has a five-string setup, and it basically just extends the range of the instrument up another fifth. Uh, the, The strings of a cello, of a viola, of a violin are all tuned a fifth apart. And um, if you've you've picked up a violin before, you know that the lowest note is a G, the highest is an A. Uh, 
and uh, tuning in fifths makes it kind of easy to hear to get things in tune. Uh, it's, it's relatively easy to hear a perfect fifth. And the viola starts basically one note lower. It's C, G, D, and A. And unlike the violin, it leaves off the E. So if you were to have something, maybe a piccolo viola, uh, if such an instrument were to exist, and I'm sure at some point in history somebody's done this, um, you would basically have the same type of thing as you have in this in this cello five-string instrument that basically allows you to more easily play the wide range that Bach writes for. Now that's a lot of information to tell you about it, but I want you to listen to more so just the performance style, uh, the tempo, uh, the rhythmic inflections, uh, the style that exists between these two artists, knowing that at some point in the future they're actually going to get their heads together and have some conversations and try to learn from one another. So in general, I would say that uh, things are a little slower, they're a little less intense, and Terlinden is taking um, less effort to really make obvious the, the sort of interesting thing that Bach is doing here. Um, this is music that I don't think you would invent yourself just by thinking about it. This this movement, this prelude. Its main purpose, if you haven't figured out, is just to establish the key and to almost wake the instrument up. I've talked about this before in terms of, of the purpose of a prelude in a suite. And knowing that, that preludes were not always something you'd find in uh, suites written by German composers, uh, the prelude here is, is really doing what uh, the French composers would write these for, which is to wake up the instrument. And of course, we have a history of um, the unmetered preludes from, from harpsichord and lute music, where the notes were written without stems, they were written without rhythmic uh, flags on them. So you're just kind of waking the instrument up. And that's what Bach is doing it, doing that here. But he's doing it in a very metered way. Um, but there's this kind of energy, this rhythmic energy. And then he allows you to, to noodle around again, and then he uh, changes to another harmony and, and does the same thing. And with an instrument like this that has an upper range, it really gives the opportunity for the instrument to sing. And that's one of the things that I, and this is a tough comparison to make, but uh, it, it seems to me that this instrument that uh, Terlinden is using lends itself just a little bit more to that kind of singing quality. Um, and so you get two perspectives there of, of how to perform this music. Um, again, kind of a modern approach on things where we're kind of digging in and treating the music as truly virtuosic music. You've got to imagine if you get a world-class cellist like Yo-Yo Ma or if you get a world-class violinist, maybe somebody like an Itzhak Perlman, and they approach this music and where their specialty isn't the Baroque repertoire, um, you can't help but, but to milk this music for everything it's got through the tradition of, of knowing that this was important music and people were playing it and people wanted to come up with their own take on this great music and to heighten it in any way you can as a performer. You, you almost can't blame uh, performers for wanting to push the envelope a bit. And so I simply lay that out there. This is the first uh, Bachcast episode we're doing featuring the suites. So I know this issue will come up again. And I don't want to uh, bring it up in each episode, but I want to point it out here. Um, 
that you've got this historical um, uh, kind of expectation, and then you've got this uh, superstar uh, performer type of expectation. And as we listen to some different examples and how things go, keep that in the back of your mind. Um, incidentally, uh, neither of these two recordings is the one I'm going to choose as my favorite. And in case you're wondering why I decided to start with uh, the sixth suite and not the first and go just go in order, which would kind of make sense, um, this one's just been on my mind, mind recently. My, the newest recording I have of the box suites has really been on my mind a lot. And in particular, uh, I am simply in love with the reading of the sixth suite by uh, the artist that will be revealed in just a few moments. Um, and so I wanted to highlight that because it's, it's really meant something special to me uh, in recent months. So the focus of this uh, podcast episode is the sixth suite. And I've mentioned the uh, movements are, are listed in the show notes. But basically, we just open with a prelude. And the purpose of that is to wake up the instrument and to um, sensitize the listener, if you will, to the key. And um, what I was going with before is you wouldn't just come up with this. Um, the way it's written and the the push and the drive that I think Yo-Yo Ma pulls out just a little more clearly for us to hear is that this this was music written by somebody who uh, had actually picked up one of these instruments and actually kind of understood what was possible. Um, it likely wouldn't be something that you would just come up with on your own. So whomever this composer was, of course we know it's Johann Sebastian Bach, we know that they were... Uh, somewhat intimately uh, associated with this instrument, which is always a mystery to me of how does Bach write music like this, and we don't know to what extent he was as a cellist. We know that he played the viola, we know he played the violin. Certainly, knowledge of those instruments would, would transfer very nicely to how to write for the cello, but... Um, there's, there's something to be said about uh, how this music simply fits uh, the, a string instrument. And, and this one in particular, this opening, that kind of driving rhythm and, and opening up the, uh, the chord there so we get this sense of D major is, is, is kind of cool. It's a little different. Um, you, you won't hear any other preludes in the, in the set quite like that one. And uh, he's also kind of announcing to us, I believe, that we've got this extended range that he's going to make use of. So some things to think about and look out for as we explore the rest of number six. Now let's turn to the next movement, which, as you might guess, is an allemande. comes from a recording of Bruno Coxet, who uh, is, a, I believe, a, a French cellist who I've had the occasion to hear as part of uh, the Concert of Nations under Jordi Saval, and I've since uh, really appreciated uh, some of his recordings and enjoyed his playing. And in his reading of, of Bach's cello suites, this allemande almost loses its dance quality and it's like this heartfelt, uh, sad, uh, but yet hauntingly beautiful melody that if you were to look at the score in this case, even if you don't read music, I would, I would check it out for a couple things. Um, the first is to look at the clef, and the clef is the, is the very first thing you see on a bar of music, and the bass clef, which is the appropriate clef for writing music for a cello 
is is being replaced in a lot of parts with a different clef, the alto clef, which we're used to seeing for for the viola. Um, so it just gives you a little clue that he's writing for the upper register of the instrument, which tends tends to sing a little bit because it's high, but it also um, it has this quality that makes it sound a little tender and um, I think it adds to that sad quality I, I mentioned. And frankly, to get a sad feeling, and you may not agree with me, uh, but I, and I do think it matters who you listen to performing it. I don't think every cellist comes across with, with sadness as part of this work. But to me, the fact that Bach could even suggest sadness writing in a somewhat sunny major key like D major um, is something significant. And I think, number one, it has something to do with the range of the instrument, but also um, what Bach chooses to do once that instrument's in hand. And what he's doing in this movement is giving us a pretty simple melody but he's writing out uh, basically the, the improvisatory uh, noodling around, if you will, and that the performer can do without having to say, hey, make something special, this melody. Uh, Bach is writing it out. And of course, we have examples of this that came before Bach that, in fact, maybe Bach was emulating, but we have slow movements um, by Corelli is one of the best examples. So Corelli, this um, famous uh, violinist who basically was at the height of his powers around 1700, who um, was active in Rome, publishes this uh, Opus 5 collection of violin sonatas. And if you look at the music, it's, it looks simple. It's well-written. It's got great harmony. It's got some interesting rhythmic things going on. But for all of that, you kind of look at it and go, gosh, this, this is the best, this is the most talked about composer of the time. And then you read about what people were saying about his performances and that he's this virtuoso and he's uh, basically doing all these things with his music and you, you scratch your head and go, wait a minute, don't think this sounds like the description of what I see in the page. And then you kick yourself thinking, oh, yeah, uh, musicians at the time were adding, they were improvising to what might appear on a, on a printed page or a written out page, whatever the case may be. And so um, we have several violinists slightly after Corelli's time who go out and publish basically Im improvised versions of that. And performers today always have the challenge of deciding, do I play the straight Corelli stuff? Do I play the recorded, uh, the improvised, supposedly, versions that other composers wrote out? Or am I supposed to do my own? And in this case, I think Bach took it safe. He said, I want this type of improvisatory um, addition to a simple melody, but I'm going to write it out for you. It's really a beautiful movement, and it's it's somewhat, I hate to say somewhat unique, because there's no such thing, it's either unique or not, but uh, you really don't, don't encounter music like this in the other suites. And that's another reason to kind of point this, point this out to you, is that it's just kind of interesting. And I think it's a... Uh, it's, it's a hint of what's to come in the last movement, which is a jig. And I'll let out the secret now. I, I think the jig is one of the most sad uh, yet human uh, movements that Bach has written. And what makes it, makes it so interesting is that it's written as a jig, something that's supposed to be uh, dancing and celebrating and you tapping your foot and it's in a major key, and yet to me it comes across so tragic and sad. And if that, if what I'm detecting in, in a performance or two today is 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 true, and that is Bach's intention to inject some sadness into this, of course, then we have to go back and, uh, of course, do some research. Why might 
why might Bach have been so sad? Is there a meaning behind the piece uh, that isn't evidently, uh, it's not evidently evident to us just by looking at the score, just by hearing something? Uh, and of course, that then we get into the realm of being a music historian or musicologist and trying to dig stuff up. And because Bach is such an interesting uh, composer, one of the, of course, most well-regarded composers of classical repertoire in our history in the Western world. Uh, there are all kinds of interesting theories out there about Bach's music, including the one which I put in the show notes, that maybe this wasn't written by Bach at all. Maybe it was written by his wife uh, because of the way something was written on a title page. But I'm not going to indulge that rumor because I, while it was interesting, I don't really give it any authority. Uh, I really do think uh, one of the Western world's musical geniuses wrote this music, and that, of course, was Bach himself, not his wife. Nevertheless, let's move on to the courant. Uh, the courant, typically courants are uh, one of the faster movements and can appear in, uh, courants will appear in, in three beats. And if you look at the score, it doesn't look too strange, I guess. You'll see that Bach is playing with rhythms. He's repeating some rhythms there. Uh, eighth note, two sixteenth notes, and then taking that up again, and then it just all breaks loose, and you get a bunch of sixteenth notes. And it's just that kind of rhythm that he indulges us in is just kind of pr propels the thing forward, uh, making for a uh, kind of a fun movement. Um, as with the dances, you're going to hear, if you listen to these performances throughout, not the little clips I'm giving you, you'll notice that uh, he's writing in binary forms. We've talked about that before. A binary form basically means there's an A and a B section to something. And... Um, it's always interesting uh, if you are are looking at the music to see how he ends things. So the the movement, the courant starts in uh, with a D, which of, of course is the key center of this entire suite, which makes sense. We see two sharps in the key signature, which indicates yes. Yes, Virginia, we are in the key of D major, but he ends that first A section on an A which, uh, if you have studied any music theory, is a good guess that he's ending on the dominant chord or the A major chord. Um, and in music, when you hear that dominant chord, the next thing you want to hear, the next natural thing your ear is yearning for is to go back to the home key. And, of course, when you repeat, you start on D again, so that kind of works. But what does he do when he goes to the second section? Well, there he is playing in, he starts with B. And we get a, again get that, uh, excuse me, not B. I had to look at my clef here. Um, he switched to the alto clef. So he's playing in A. So he's playing in the dominant. And he's got the same rhythm, rhythmic motives um, that he had before. That little jump, dun da da dun da da dun da da dun da da and if you were to fast forward to the end, he ends again on a D. So he closes things out. That is more or less super typical of all these dance movements. Um, it's just that I had the score in front of me. I wanted to make sure that you kind of got that. Um, so I'll give you a little taste of the karat, and I think I'll choose once again to borrow that example from uh, Mr. Coxett. And then we're going to move to my favorite performance to end out the examples. Thank you. 
so did I, was I right? It's kind of cool music, right? Um, it's, it's, it's definitely got a virtuosic flair to it. And that performance really kind of trucks along at a good pace. And we kind of have appreciation for uh, the performer, I think, at that point. Uh, not only for all the notes that they're playing, um, but also that range we talked about that Bach is exploring. Um, going to the upper reaches of the instrument. Uh, which, again, if you've got the other suites in the back of your head or you've got some favorite movements from those, gives this thing a whole different character. Now, I opened this move, this episode talking about the difference between um, maybe a more conservative approach to playing, and I used an example from um, a performance on original instruments, and I'm sorry if I'm... You hear some background noise here. There's a little bug in the room, and I'm trying not to inhale it. Um, So we had that Jape Terlinden on on the Baroque cello, and we first heard Yo-Yo Ma on the modern cello, and uh, just that comparison, it might not be enough to make the case of of period versus modern, but you definitely heard a little bit a different approach to performance there. And, and I made the case that maybe Yo-Yo Ma was, you know, trying to splash his way onto the international stage as a, as a huge virtuoso and was really um, trying to push as much out of the music that was uh, possible for us to take notice of what makes Bach's music so interesting. And probably more than some of, even some of his keyboard works, the, the things he's doing with rhythm, such as in this Courant, really kind of um, make this music a lot of fun and uh, I imagine uh, make it fun to play once you've got all the technique down and what you need to do. Um, I'm not remembering who said it, but I remember reading many years ago about how you know Bach was definitely pushing the technique of the instrument. And of course, if you are a, a classically trained cellist, you will have played at least one of these suites in learning to master the instrument and to um, to grow your technique. Now we're going to go to my favorite performance of this suite, and I'm not going to backtrack a whole lot, but I am going to start this courant again, because here we have a performer who, to be fair, uh, performs on both modern and Baroque cellos. In this case, he is playing on a Baroque cello, and this performer is Peter Wispelway, and... I hope I said that right. Yes, whisp away. Um, And I apologize if there's anybody uh, I've announced in this podcast and have butchered their name. Um, I've known to do that in the past. Uh, But Mr. Whisp away, at least the way I'm going to say it, because I think it's kind of a cool name. Um, He's performing on a Baroque cello here. And if I'm correct, this is his third reading of the Bach cello suites. And I can't remember which one. I I own one of the earlier ones. I can't remember if that's number one or number two. Um, This one, if you're looking, shopping by picture, it's got uh, him kind of walking along a road, and the the cover is mostly this grayish-blue color. And what you're going to find, I think, is kind of interesting. He's playing with Baroque technique, with a Baroque bow, but he's kind of pushing the limits a bit just like uh, that reminds me of Yo-Yo Ma in 1984. So give this a listen, see if you like the style here, and you're going to notice that he's definitely pushing uh, for that rhythm and those that kind of uh, drive that's a part of a faster movement like this. things to notice. Um, 
in the performance itself, he when he hits those high notes at, at the top of those runs, uh, they really just sing, and they come out really clear. Um, and I really like that. The other thing to notice, I think, there are some parallels I would pull uh, from this movement and the prelude. We talked in the prelude of, in terms of Bach trying to establish the key center, and um, there's a little bit of that going on here, a little bit of that style that he established, which makes us wonder, hmm, was it just waking up the instrument or was it waking up some motives and some ideas that were going to appear later? Uh, I'll just put that in your, in your cap to think about as well. Uh, the next movement, uh, to finish off the suite, Bach gives us a Sarabande, and Sarabands I usually think of as, as the sad movements. Uh, that's oversimplifying things, but there have been some very feeling Sarabands. Um, and then we get uh, a pair of gavots, another uh, faster dance, if you will. And then we end with a jig. And so let's listen to each of those. And again, we'll be listening here to the... Uh, the most recent of the recordings by Peter Whispelway, um, put out in 2012. So again, a lot of a lot of clues you're going to see if you look at the music, but it looks very different from anything we've seen so far. Uh, it opens with a lot of notes with with holes in them, circles with holes in them. Um, it's written in the key of of three two, which is basically means the half note gets the beat, and he's he's just digging in with all these chords, which um, we've heard that already, but they've been kind of punctuate in a few places, but this is basically just drowning the player um, in in the challenge of playing uh, three and four notes at a time. Um, cellists or violinists, uh, string players would call these triple stops or quadruple stops. Um, and, and Bach is doing this to, to show off the instrument as a as a what a string instrument can uniquely do, and that's, and that's play some chords. There is, of course, um, this technique has been used elsewhere by Bach. There have been um, suggestions that perhaps Bach would have used a special kind of bow to facilitate this playing. Um, there's a suggestion that uh, the bow used to play this many chords would be loosened and tightened using the thumb so that if you were to put some slack on the hairs, it would be easier to play two, three, four notes at a time, a little easier. But I think you get here that um, it, it's quite playable without any special techniques, that uh, Mr. Whispleway does a very, very good job. And it also speaks to having a really well-tuned instrument and very good uh, ear in playing all those notes in tune. Uh, this is one of those pieces that will um, bring you to tears by 
uh, an elementary cellist who is just kind of getting started if they don't have uh, a good ear because playing all those notes together in tune and sustaining them and then in the later half, he, he moves to quarter notes and, and moving things around. Um, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful piece of music, and uh, it, it just doesn't work in some performances for me. It does in this one. And it also, if you're keenly listening, the harmonic um, pattern that, that Bach is establishing is going to reappear. And uh, that's kind of cool. So it's kind of the slow-mo version of something else we'll hear. And uh, that's kind of Bach being clever, I think, and being economic. So uh, a gavotte uh, is in two. And Bach gives us a pair of those coming up next. And it's... Probably the pair is probably the most familiar. I'm going out there postulating what people recognize, but um, it, it's probably the most familiar uh, dances from this suite if you um, were to say, hey, I think I've heard that before. Uh, Bach, once again, is using the triple and quadruple stops here. Uh, they, a lot of them will appear on the downbeat. He's got that rhythmic stuff going on along again, which is kind of fun. Um, so the pair, how will these be performed? They're each in their own binary um, move, uh, binary construction. But a lot of times when uh, you do this, you can go back and you kind of recap with the first, and that's what folks are doing here, um, playing the first, the second, and then going back to the first again to round it off. can't tell you how how exciting that is um, for me he's playing it so so well and so heartfelt in a way that really resonates with me uh, in the first gavotte he is he's holding on to some of those bass notes in, in the multi stops and he's he's hitting those two notes and holding on and really making the chords speak and uh, it's it's just a change from uh, what's typically heard. And the only way I could explain it that makes sense to me, he's got a little attitude about the way he's playing. And it, that attitude reveals itself again in the second gavotte, the one that goes da 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 yum bum 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 ba da 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 yum bum 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 bum. Very simple little piece, right? yum bum 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 ba da 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 yum bum 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 bum. Yum bum bum bum. And he's 
He's just adding a little bit of um, character to it, which I don't think would come from somebody in their first recording or somebody who was a student. It's going to come from somebody who, who's played these pieces in and out uh, over and over again and really has come to love the music. What's interesting to me of these two pieces is they are in a major key. They seem to be happy, joyful pieces that seem to be about reflect somebody who's happy about celebrating life. Uh, keep that in mind. After the gavats, the final movement is a jig. I want to prepare you for this, probably because I'm going to program your mind to think this way, which is not really what I want to do. But I want to tell you, this is the movement that really has stuck with me and, and has propelled this, along with the gavats, to be the forerunner in, in the recordings I've heard and listened to and owned of Bach's cello suites. It comes across to me as a tragically sad piece of music. And this is what I hear from Wispaway. I don't know if he feels this. I don't know if that's what he's injecting into the music. I don't know if Bach is trying to end this piece with some tragic human story. Uh, that would be certainly me putting that onto the music. But the fact that it comes across this way and it comes across so deeply to me is one of the reasons why I think this is my favorite reading of the sixth of Bach's cello suites. So without any further ado, I'm going to play the jig. This again is by Peter Wispelway. something to do with the, that upper range of the instrument how it just kind of sings it has this um uh quality about it that makes it sound uh susceptible to uh 
I don't know. It, it has this human feeling to me that uh, has this, this tinge of sadness to it. Um, and it doesn't always come across. But what comes across for me in this reading that, uh, aside from the sadness issue, which is maybe something personal to me, I don't know, um, he, he does a really good job on a couple of things. He, when, he, when he's hitting those triple stops, those chords, He's really focusing on those. He's really giving them a little bit of extra time, uh, which to me is just kind of fun amongst all those notes and um, just having us hang on for that extra little second is, is kind of a fun thing to do. The second is how he's articulating uh, the notes here. Um, articulation is not something I normally have, have brought up in um, this, uh, this series, Articulation is basically um, how you're playing, attacking the notes, how you're articulating, in other words, the notes. And when you've got a lot of notes to play, do you play them all the same or do you do what Bach has indicated here and play some of them legato, which uh, Italian, Italian speak that we like to use in music, but basically means that you you kind of speak the first note and uh, what we see in the score if you're looking at a score these these lines that go across connecting notes uh, we call them slurs and it basically you're smoothing out the rest of the notes and on a cello what it means is that you're uh, you're coming away from the string you're attacking the string with with the hairs and then those rest of those notes are being played in one bow stroke and your fingers are the thing that are changing the notes. Um, which, if you look carefully at box score, means that there's some challenging little runs and things going on there. And then what's interesting is when he doesn't slur notes, and you all of a sudden have to attack those with a little bit of a bite. Um, I'm not sure if those articulation marks have been studied uh, and that type of study has been made available to the general public i have no doubt that some uh, music student has perhaps done a dissertation on that topic um, but probably more so than some of the other performers out there i really appreciate that um, wispel way was making a, a kind of a concerted effort to um, convey the differences between the slurred, those slurred notes and those that did not have the slurs. It kind of stuck out to me in terms of the performance. And so, so it ends. That is the, um, the last movement of Bach's six cello suite. Um, there are a lot of contenders out there, uh, in terms of if you're shopping and trying to find a version of this, this, uh, this work or the, usually of course it's recorded as a collection. Um, you're going to find today, in 2015, you're going to find tons of uh, historically informed performances. You're going to find even more probably on uh, non-historically informed uh, perspectives. And as I mentioned before, you're going to find some from folks who uh, sort of take in both um, I think I've written about this before. I'm not sure I've ever talked about it in a podcast, but when Yo-Yo Ma recorded his second version uh, of the Bach cello suites, they sounded to me when I listened to them to be at a different pitch center. And if you are lucky enough to own multiple recordings and you go back and forth between uh, the historically informed, the so-called original instrument versions, and then the the modern cello that's that's tuned to an A at 440, you'll kind of do a double take and say, wait a minute, it sounds higher, or wait a minute, it sounds lower. Um, and when I listen to Yo-Yo Ma's second version, it sounded a little lower. And I took that to mean that uh, he was trying things at, at a lower pitch. And none of that was mentioned in the liner notes from that release. Um, just an interesting little byproduct there of a performer who, for me, is probably the closest aligned to someone here like Peter Whispelway, who's uh, not ashamed to kind of dig into the music, 
to cull out some of the, the interesting details, especially here, as we heard when it comes to playing these big, fat chords on the instrument, uh, when it came to looking at the articulation marks that Bach left behind, which, in Bach's music, um, we don't get a lot of help. You know, Bach did use slurs. He occasionally would use a tempo indication, but um, pretty much in the entire Baroque period, um, composers were very Spartan with giving us a lot of clues about how to play the music uh, using the same techniques that performers use today. If you look at a modern score by a composer who's still living and uh, there's much more concerted effort by composers today to give as much detail as possible in a score about how something's to be played. Um, leaving no, you know, no error to, to taking chances. And of course in Bach's time, uh, that just wasn't the way you did it. And so when Bach does give us some of these clues and something like these articulations, uh, it's, it's worth taking note of and it's worth uh, exploring them to the point of, of really of us taking notice. And I guess that's my preference for, for how this music gets performed. I want a performance that pushes things a little bit. I want someone who feels the rhythmic drive, who understands what's happening harmonically, who feels the music and it comes across. And since I'm selling that to you right now, and I've said that here's this 2012 recording by Peter Wispelway, uh, it is my favorite recording of the Bach cello suites. However, going forward, I'm not always going to say, well, you know, here's Peter Wispelway, he did the best again. There are so many great things to find in so many different performances, but if if you do not have uh, three, four, five, six, seven recordings of the Bach cello suites, and you're looking for one and you like what you heard here, definitely would check it out. His earlier one was also good that I had on the Channel Classics label, um, but this by far, he he digs in a little deeper. He gets a, almost a more rustic approach, I think. Um, it's, it's like in some cases, and I may not be speaking about the examples you heard here, but it's almost like he doesn't care if he does things a little rough around the edges. He's just going for it and having some fun. And there's something to be said when you when you finish a recording and you, you step back and say, gosh, I, I think the performer must have been having some fun. So I hope you appreciate getting a taste of Bach's sixth cello suite. I hope to, uh, to have provided you with some different uh, interpretive styles and some different things to explore. Please visit my website, bieberfan.org. That's spelled B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot O-R-G, where you'll find show notes for this episode. And in the show notes, I try to uh, summarize, if you will, the the basic thing that I want to point out in each piece. And I provide you links to things like how to get some of these recordings. So check it out. And last but not least, thank you for listening. <laughs>